Well, good morning. It is awesome to see that everyone is brave. The, the hail from April, right? Uh, the cold that we all expected this April. Um, it's great to see you. Uh, my name is Josh. I am the student pastor uh, here on staff. And um, it's awesome just to see kids and students, students serving in different ways and, and being a part of today. Um, today, if you're not familiar, uh, is called Palm Sunday. Um, and if you are a maybe first-time churchgoer, you came in here and you saw some of the cardboard cutout uh, of the uh, palm tree branches, uh, those things, uh, you're probably really confused. You're probably wondering what kind of mess we made. Uh, maybe just like, it's just strange. Um, this is a uh, first moment, or this is the first step into uh, what Barry referenced earlier, which is Passion Week. Essentially, uh, we're looking and studying the walk of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and, and we're seeing how he is beginning to enter into Jerusalem, in which he is going to accomplish the mission of dying on the cross and then raising up from the grave. So, if you're a kid in the room, um, we're, we're glad that you're here. Um, you can follow along with your sermon notes and all that kind of stuff. Back when I was a kid, um, we uh, used to actually pass out uh, uh, palm trees or palm, not whole trees, that'd be crazy, but uh, palm branches. Um, that would be amazing, right? Uh, but we'd pass out palm branches and I would always take them and uh, pretending like it was a sword, right? Like I'd start um, hitting people and all that kind of stuff. So we didn't provide that, uh, but you can grab one from the ground or something like that. I'm sorry, parents, if you don't want that. Um, but, uh, but we're glad that you're here as well. But uh, let's go ahead and jump into the text for this morning um, and just get right into it. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 11. I'm just gonna break down this text and begin to kind of walk through it as we do. Jesus, uh, his ministry has grown. He has grown in popularity. He has been doing miracles. People know who he is. There is a following uh, that has been walking with him, and he has his apostles all together, and he is ready to essentially accomplish the mission that he has set out to do. So he is going to Jerusalem with uh, the end in mind, and we see in verse one of chapter 11, it says this, when they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he told them, go into the village ahead of you. And as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back uh, here right away. So they went and they found a colt outside in the street tied by a door and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they answered them just as Jesus said. So he let them go. So uh, real quick, what, what's happening in this text? We wanna kind of set the table so we understand a little bit what's going on. Uh, it's it kind of debated within scholarly realms, if you will, uh, whether or not Jesus prophetically looked on this moment and said, oh, I know that there's gonna be some sort of cult here, um, or uh, if he prearranged this. It seems weird because it almost seems like uh, Jesus is essentially letting or having his disciples steal this cult, right? Like he's, they're, they're committing grand theft cult in this moment and, and running away with it. And um, it just seems strange, but most likely Jesus has prearranged this visit with this cult. Now, this word cult, um, when we envision it, you might uh, think of a baby horse. And that's true. 
Um, it could be a baby horse. Now, most likely, um, and this will play into something later on, but most likely it's not just a baby horse or one of those mini horses that looks super silly and cute. Um, this is most likely a, a donkey. So this word could mean different things, but most likely it's a donkey because during uh, this time where in Jerusalem, there wasn't a lot of horses. So most likely this was some sort of donkey. Jesus commands these people, these, these disciples, to go and find one that's unridden. And again, we're gonna see this play into something later on, but Jesus wants this donkey unridden because kings do not allow anyone else to ride their donkey. So Jesus says, I want to break in this donkey. I want to ride this donkey, and it is mine, okay? So he is establishing that in this moment. Look at verse seven. It says, they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now to us, this is a very kind of weird sight, right? Like maybe if you've been a part of church, you just know what's going to happen. So it doesn't seem weird to you. But honestly, like if this happened in our day and age, someone would be wondering and questioning what's going on, right? Like if we're taking off cloaks, if we're cutting down uh, evergreen trees and we're laying it in the ground, um, you'd, you'd wonder what is going on. Quite literally, the people are laying down the red carpet for Jesus. Like they are literally establishing that he is so holy, that he is the king that has come, that, that he shouldn't have to walk on the ground, that these things are to be placed here because he is a great king. And there's a lot of things that you could look back on in the Old Testament to kind of reference this and show that there is uh, a certain awe and things that uh, were uh, particular in Hebrew culture to kind of show that awe. For instance, uh, when the uh, priestly order, the Maccabees, uh, uh, freed the uh, uh, oppression of the temple um, we, 200 years before this text, uh, they, the people came out and they, they want, waved the palm trees. And so maybe in this moment, the, the people are remembering that and they want to do the same thing. They want to say, just like uh, the Maccabees liberated the temple 200 years before, in the same way, Jesus is about to liberate us. So we're celebrating that in this way. There's also a king in 2 Kings chapter 9 named King Jehu, which is just an amazing name. Um, king Jehu is riding in uh, as he is being made king and the people take their cloaks and they lay them on the ground. Um, and, and that's in honor and reference. So maybe they're remembering that. In many ways, uh, maybe subconsciously, they're also fulfilling Old Testament property, uh, prophecy through Isaiah 55, 12, in which uh, Isaiah, the prophet, says uh, that the leaves of the trees will clap their hands at the glory of God. And so they're, in a lot of ways, clapping uh, and using the palm trees and actually establishing that. Um, but even in their words and phrasing, we see what their intent is and how they view Jesus. This word Hosanna literally means save us now. So they're praising the fact that Jesus is coming in, but they're essentially yelling, save us, save us right now. And these people were under Roman oppression. They were under a government that was, uh, was tyrannical and was just causing all these problems. And when they had seen and heard about Jesus's ministry, they knew that this king would potentially uh, save them from that Roman government. 
And so they're calling for Jesus. They're saying, Lord, come save us now. And then they're worshiping and praising him for what he's about to accomplish. Now, there are a lot of expectations for Jesus in this moment. There's a lot going on in these people's minds. Like you can imagine when they're lining up on the street and they're seeing him coming, each person has a view of Jesus and what he's going to accomplish in this moment. Most of these people most likely were looking at Jesus and seeing him as some sort of warrior king. That Jesus was gonna come in like Aragorn um, and he was gonna save the Israelite people. If you're not a Lord of the Rings person, I'm sorry. Um, You put in whoever your favorite uh, mythical person is. Uh, He's gonna save them like some sort of mythical king uh, that is going to end up ultimately freeing them, um, that is some sort of warrior that has strength and might, and he's going to go to the Roman government, and he's going to establish all these things, and, and, and he's going to create a following that's going to free them, and all of that. They have that in their mind. There's an expectation they've placed on Jesus. It's interesting with humanity, with human beings in general, um, we all kind of create expectations in our mind, Right? Like we all have the ability in our mind's eye to see a situation or a person or an event and expect something out of that thing before it even happens or occurs. Like uh, for instance, maybe you know that you're going to meet someone. Maybe it's someone that's coming to your job for the first time. Maybe you're going on a first date and you're not really sure who that person is. And um, maybe there's uh, a new friend that you're gonna meet or a new small group, a new community group that you're gonna be a part of. And, and you go online, right? This is how we all figure out who's who now. We go online, we go to Facebook or Instagram and we look up their account and then we begin to look at all their pictures. We look at their statements, right? We stalk them uh, to kind of figure it out. We begin to kind of create this caricature in our mind of this person who's like, you know, we, we begin to kind of look at their interests and their likes. When did they get married? When did they go to school? You know, like we, we try to figure that all out. And then we create in our mind this image of this person, right? We create in our mind who they are. And then we go and we interact with that person based upon the image that we have. And then we either that person matches up or they don't. I, I remember when I first moved here, literally three years ago um, from Ohio, I came over and uh, there was someone in the student ministry who uh, came up to me and they were like, uh, you know, we were just talking and they, they said, um, you know, Josh, when I saw your Facebook and I stalked you and um, all that stuff online, um, you know, you're, you're different than I thought you were gonna be. And I'm like, thanks, that's, um, I guess, right? Like, I, I don't know if that's a good thing or if that's a bad thing, but this person had, um, it was probably about that, but um, this person had created this image or this expectation of what I was supposed to be like. And then they interacted with me uh, while I was here based upon that specific expectation. And that's what the Jews are doing in this moment. The crowd is gathering around. There's all this excitement. They're ready for this king. They think that he's gonna be doing these awesome and, and mighty works. They've already seen him do miracles. So man, like how awesome would it be if he just takes Rome and throws them up in the sky? And then I'm making that up. That's not the Bible, but... Um, but what if he did all these things? Like, what if he just liberated us and he came in and he finally freed us like some sort of warrior king? And what we're gonna see is that in Jesus's arrival, the way that he shows up is going to completely go against the expectations of what the crowd had for him. And it's gonna go completely against the expectations that we may have for See, as Palm Sunday, throughout all this next week, we may have expectations of Jesus 
that are somewhat true, but not the total truth of who Jesus is. Like maybe we see Jesus as this anxiety remover of our life. That if we believe in Jesus, we place him as Lord and Savior of our life. Ultimately, all fears are going to subside. He's going to make sure that everything's good in our life and everything's gonna be okay. We don't have to worry about anything and everything's gonna be awesome. Maybe we see him as some sort of financial improver of our life. That if we believe in Jesus, then uh, you know school debt's gonna continue to get pushed away and um, we're gonna be able to uh, have our bank accounts just grow and grow and grow. And we're gonna experience all this financial success. Maybe, maybe Jesus is this uh, society improver. Like if we believe in Jesus and we take on his teachings and maybe our political party will ultimately end up being the one that gets in place. And we're gonna see the city of Seattle change in the way that we want it to change or have all these things happen in the way that we want it to happen. And I'm not saying that Jesus can't or won't or doesn't do those things. But ultimately, there is a greater mission of Jesus. There is a greater character of Jesus that we can grow into and understand that is greater than our expectations. See, the expectation that you have for Jesus didn't die for you. Only the son of God in totality, who he is, who he came to be, died for you. And so we need to understand and lean in on the nature of who he truly is. And I think Palm Sunday shows us that. I think Jesus is gonna reveal to us the true nature and character of who he is on his arrival. He's gonna show up and say, this is who I am. And either we can agree with that or we can walk away from that based upon the expectations that we placed on him. So there's three things that I wanna run through and then we'll end up wrapping up this morning. The first thing that I wanna look at is the promise of our king the promise of our king. If you were to go back, all of this that Jesus is doing is actually fulfilled in a lot of Old Testament prophecy. So all the way back in Genesis chapter one, we see God creates the world and it's good. He forms and uh, creates man and there's a perfect relationship with man, creation, and God. But ultimately in Genesis chapter three, we see the world is fractured and broken because mankind decides to do their own thing and go against God and that relationship is forever fractured. So God then, all throughout the Old Testament, and we saw this very prevalently in Exodus, all throughout the Old Testament was creating ways for his people to be able to go back into perfect relationship with him. And there's all of these prophecies that take place that speak to some sort of king that is going to come to ultimately save us and bring us back to a perfect relationship with him. And that's what Jesus is fulfilling in, Genesis, or in Mark chapter 11. It's interesting because in Genesis, we see God beginning to create all these rules and laws and stuff. And he, he starts by creating uh, these patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes to Jacob and he gives him 12 sons. Through one son, Judah, he goes to him and uh, he, he says, out of your line will come a king that king will be marked by uh, his rule with a scepter and he also will be marked by a donkey. And it seems really, that, that's a weird statement to make, right? It seems strange that he would be marked with a donkey, but the Israelite people are left with that statement. 
And then over the years, we see time and time again, the Israelites trying to grow back closer to the Lord. They fail. They, they're waiting for this king. They get, they get taken captive multiple times. They are continuously hoping for this king. They know how he's marked. They know what he's supposed to look like. And then after the second temple is destroyed, we see in Isaiah chapter 52, the prophet Isaiah gets up. And when the people are most defeated, thinking that maybe the king has left them, maybe God has left them, maybe he's not speaking to them anymore. Isaiah gets up and he says, don't stop giving up hope. He says that there is a messenger that's going to be coming. He's going to be coming in front of the king and his feet are beautiful because it brings good news. And the city of Jerusalem will rejoice. It's almost as like this messenger is coming before this king. He has ran ahead of him to say, hey, this is coming. Ready your hearts, ready your minds. And then in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah talks to the Israelite people and he says, just as Isaiah was promising all this, this king to come, this is how he will be Marked, And he says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. It's almost as if he's, he's reflecting on what Isaiah has said. And he says that the, the, the messenger has come. Look in the distance. You can see someone coming. He says, look, your king is coming. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. So what Jesus is doing is essentially saying, I am that from Genesis to now. I am the king that is coming. I am the promised one. I am the Messiah. I am not just another David. I am not just another Solomon. I am king, Messiah, coming to free the people. Now, again, the Israelite people in this moment are going to be thinking that he is going to come and he's going to rule and he's going to reign in such a way that is, that is formed within their expectations and mine. But Jesus changes that by the way that he rides in on this donkey. And that brings us to the second point, the paradox of our king. The paradox of our king. Not only do we have this promise, but in that promise, we have a paradox. And a paradox is essentially two things that seem different that come together as one in some way. See, kings at this time uh, would typically come in on a big, beautiful horse. They'd, they'd come in, they'd ride in victorious and triumphant. They'd come in with this big horse um, and everyone would know that the king was coming because it was just super illustrious and majestic. It was awesome. Um, Jesus decides not to. He rides on a donkey, right? He purposely chooses to fulfill Zechariah 9.9 and rides in on a donkey. Um, now this, to us, again, if we're familiar with Palm Sunday, we're like, whatever, it's not that big of a deal, but it's honestly kind of strange. Um, this is a grown man riding a small animal, okay? Like, it's, it's kind of weird. Like, it would be like as if, um, you know, we know that the president um, had made this declaration that he's coming to Seattle to, to come make this big, massive statement um, that's just gonna be huge. 
And so everyone gets all excited. The, the streets begin to, to line up with people. Everyone's readying for his arrival. For whatever reason, he chose Seattle. We don't really know why. And, and everyone's it's like, they're ready. Everyone's good. And, and there's all these things that lead up to that moment. And people are shouting and there's um, music playing and all that kind of stuff, all this excitement. You, you get the point. But um, all of a sudden the secret service come in and you see the, the procession begins. And then the, whoever else would be attached to the president begins to go in. I don't really know enough about the president to, to tell you, but there's other people that are coming and it looks really awesome. And you're looking for the president. You're, you're trying to stare and see like, where is he? You're trying to make your way through the crowd. And then here comes the president, this person that, that has all this authority and he's coming in, driving in on a PT cruiser. It's sputtering and it's, it's weak. And I'm, I'm sorry if you have a PT Cruiser. Um, I love you. I, it's a great car, great vehicle. I couldn't choose anything else. Um, but it's a PT Cruiser. You can choose whatever you want. Um, but it's like that. It's like this, you, you're ready. And then you're like, what statement is he making? What is he trying to do? And Jesus is doing the same thing. He is making a statement by entering in on a donkey. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, famous pastor and theologian, in a very famous sermon called The Excellency of Christ, talks about this idea and that Jesus does not fit into our category of kingship. He points to uh, Revelation 5, 5 through 6. Um, in Revelation, the apostle John has been given a vision um, of things that are to come. And uh, as he does, there's a really interesting thing that happens in Revelation chapter 5. It says this, then one of the elders, and this is to John, said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then John, I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. What just happened? Jonathan Edwards points out that John is told Look for a lion. You're gonna see Jesus. Look for a lion. And as John is scanning to see this big, massive, ferocious, awesome lion, he sees a slaughtered lamb. And it's this weird picture of two very different things. But Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, the lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. It's sacrificed for food and for clothing. But we see that Christ is in the text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. There's in Jesus Christ, a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. Jesus is both. He is both majestic yet humble. He is just yet gracious. He is, has, has complete sovereignty yet complete submission. He has all sufficiency in himself yet complete dependence on God. He is a ruler and he is also a father. He is a king who rides in on a donkey. In Jesus, we see him playing the part of both, this paradox that is beautiful 
and good. And it's good because I need both. I need a strong father who is also willing to come play ball with me. I need a strong father who, who upholds the rules and the law and teaches me things. And I also need one that understands and loves and cares for me and shows grace for me. I need a God who is holy and good and righteous and cannot withstand sin at all whatsoever. But I also need one that became man, became like a sinner on the cross. And then, oh, that was my watch. Uh, Don't know what that was. Um, But he became man on the cross and then died the death that we deserve. We need both. The paradox of God comes together as one. The last thing that we see is the passion of our king. The passion of our king. And we'll see this in the second half of everything that we see here. Um, Look at verse 11 in Mark chapter 11. It says, he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus uh, comes in, he rides in as a king victorious. And then he looks around um, at the temple when he rides in and then he goes away. And then something uh, very strange happens. And we'll sit on this for a second. It says the next day, When they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, I like that statement that the disciples heard it because like, it has to be one of those things when you know, something happens and then uh, everyone's just kind of like shocked by it. Like, what just, why did Jesus, what, he's killing fig trees now? You know, like this is the only destructive parable within the entire, uh, the entire gospels. And Jesus walks up to this tree and just is like, boom, gone. And the disciples are just like, what happened? And it's strange, right? Like, I remember when I was in um, middle school and high school, again, I I grew up in Ohio, so um, there was really not a lot to do, and we'd go hiking. Um, Believe it or not, there's there's paths in Ohio. Um, There's not real, like, hiking, but there's, like, paths. And so as, like, a... um, student, we'd go out into the woods and we'd walk and just try to buy time, you know, just being a a teenage guy, just going and doing whatever teenage guys do. And, um, and, and as we'd walk along the path, we would find these trees that, uh, were dead and, uh, you go up to the tree, uh, and you, you try to figure out, okay, is this thing actually dead? And, and if it was, you'd be able to push it over. So literally, like, you know, if you were just uh, uh, enjoying your day as a common passenger, you'd just see like three middle school boys running through the woods and just pushing over trees, trying to see if they'd die. Like, I don't know what's in the heart of a, a teenage boy, but apparently uh, it's that kind of stuff, throwing rocks in lakes and pushing down trees. But it feels like, Jesus is, is doing that right now, right? Like, it feels like Jesus is just like, man, I don't, I'm just gonna show you something. Here you go, I can kill fig trees. It's just weird, right? It says it's not the season for figs. So why is he expecting figs? Um, like Jesus goes out hangry, full of righteous hanger, and he kills fig trees. Um, what's going on here? Uh, theologians and commentators essentially believe um, that in Palestine, you had all of these fig trees and there's, there'd be a bunch of them. 
And even when there, it wasn't the season for figs, there were particular trees that would blossom out of season. And when they would blossom out of season, they would produce fruit. And many people would walk by and they'd pick that fruit and they would eat it to be able to provide for them as they were traveling. So Jesus does this. He sees a tree, even though it's not the season for figs, he sees a tree that's blossoming, knowing that it's supposed to have fruit. And he goes and he tries to pick something off of it and it's not there. And so he gets frustrated. But ultimately, obviously, Jesus is not frustrated at the tree, right? I mean, he probably is like a little bit because he's human, but like um, Jesus is not frustrated at the tree. He's using it as an illustration for something that's about to come a few verses later. He had just visited the temple and he has that in his mind as he sees the fig tree. What he's saying is that the temple and the Israelite people, and even us as well, that we can look like we have all the fruit on the outside. We can look like we're blossomed, that we're religious, that we're doing everything well, that we're working for the kingdom and awesome things are happening in our life and we're studying our Bibles and we're doing everything correct. The Jews were going through the religious order and they were doing everything as they should. But on the inside, they weren't doing it for the Lord. They were like a dead fig tree that, that looked like it had fruit, but in all honesty, was already dead. And so think about that as we go into this next section. Look at verses 15 to the end of the text. It says, they came to Jerusalem and into the temple. And he began to throw out those buying and selling. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves. And then it says the chief priests and the scribes, as they hear all this, they heard it and they started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And it says, whenever evening came, they would go out from the city. So what happened? Jesus walks into the temple and he becomes upset. Now, we have to kind of understand a little bit about the temple to really fully understand why Jesus is upset. And I would highly recommend that uh, if you haven't already, go back to Nate's message last week and listen in on the, the construction of the, the tabernacle and why it was created, all the different intricacies about it. Because the, the temple was essentially a iteration of the tabernacle. It was a place for people to be able to dwell with God and be with him, to be able to actually experience the renewal and the restoration of their sins so that they could be able to be with God and they could essentially go back to what we see in Genesis chapter one, which is a perfect relationship with God. And so uh, here at the temple, uh, the way that it was constructed, it was a place to be able to worship. It was like this. It was a room to be able to worship and experience the Lord. And here's just a, uh, an illustration of what this temple looked like. This was the third iteration of the temple. Where Jesus entered was on my left over here. Uh, and it was a very big area called the Court of the Gentiles. This was the place for people that weren't Hebrew to be able to still experience uh, the Lord. They were able to come, they were able to uh, sacrifice, they were able to grow in their relationship with God um, because uh, they were outsiders, they went to this area right here. Now, in this space, there's a lot happening here in this text. Now, 
Um, on average, during the Feast of Passover, which is happening in this text at this time, 255,000 lambs would be killed at this time. Okay, so there's tons of lambs that were being killed for the sake of people's sins and offered up uh, during this feast and ceremony. So Jesus walks in, it's a, it's a huge area. People are um, buying and selling and, and there's all these lambs and all these animals and it seems really strange. It'd be as if, um, it would seem like, as if we were to throw a bunch of sheep and animals and doves and stuff in here. The kids might like that and someone might be riding one, but um, it'd be loud and it would be you know, filled with all this stuff. Um, what's happening is not, like in and of itself, this is not that abnormal. Like honestly, like to have all these lambs and stuff is not necessarily what Jesus is getting mad about because people would be traveling from all over the place to be able to come here for the feast of Passover. And so they would be coming to this space, they would be entering in and uh, they would need a sheep. Now, most people, because sheep, I presume, I have not carried a sheep, but uh, sheep are heavy right? And to travel from faraway nations and cities and then come into the temple, uh, it would be probably really annoying. And so they, uh, they wanted to buy a sheep at the temple compared to bringing one with them. It's literally the same thing as when you're going on vacation and you're like, man, let's get groceries in uh, this area compared to grabbing groceries here and going there. It's like a very similar thing. Um, they, they know that they can get sheep there, so they go there. Then there are money changers because they're all from around different places and different nations and cities and they have different currencies, they need to all come together on the same currency. And so there's money changers that are there and the money changers are helping give them the right currency so they can purchase the sheep, they can get the doves, they can do what they need to do to be able to worship and celebrate the feast of the Passover. Jesus, again, not mad about that. What, that's all fairly normal. It, it had become noisy, so I'm sure there's probably ways that they could structure it. But what Jesus is getting upset about is something that's happening within the money changers and something that's happening within people purchasing the lambs. Um, you know, people that are financially savvy uh, would, would get this, um, or maybe everyone would get this. But uh, essentially, these people that were selling the sheep knew that people needed the sheep and that they didn't want to carry them, so they did what? They upcharged the sheep. They became more expensive where it was located. In the same way, the money changers, because uh, they, they knew people would be traveling from all around, they can't get the currency in the place that they're actually at, so they need to get the currency here. They would raise the rates and they would make it unfair. So Jesus is seeing people enter in, these Gentile people who are already not a part of the Hebrew tribe, who are trying to grow closer to the Lord, to be able to experience a cleansing of sins. And he sees people scamming other people in the temple, in the church, in the place where you're supposed to worship. And Jesus fills with a righteous anger, a passion in which he gets so upset that he drives everyone out. And he begins to, in some texts, actually form a, a whip of cords and begins to chase people away because of what they're doing. And he says in verse 17, it is not written. He says, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's why Jesus is upset. That's why he's angry. He goes to this place that's supposed to be for the outsider to be able to experience a renewed relationship with God. And they've 
changed it into a place where people can get their own selfish gain, to be able to puff themselves up, to be able to get whatever they want to be able to get out of it. This is an encouraging message. If you're like, this is your first time here, or maybe this is your, you're, you're trying to check out Christianity for the very first time and you're, you're seeking after him. It is encouraging that Jesus goes first to where the outsiders are located, the ones that are furthest away from the Lord. And he says, this is the place that I'm gonna restore and redeem. This is the place that I'm going to fight for justice and goodness. The ones that are furthest away from the Lord, I am going to go closest. And Jesus redeems this area and gets frustrated on their behalf. The passion of Jesus is ignited because they had become like fig trees that looked like they were in full blossom. But in reality, on the inside, they were dead. And these people had been tricked to ultimately not follow after, the, after God, but just go through the motions. That's the passion of Jesus, the passion of our King. So then what do we do with this? Ultimately, how do we apply something like this today? Obviously, um, we're not seeing this in our world. We don't have sheep in here. We don't, uh, we're not seeing Jesus do this physically in our world today. Like, how does it relate to us so that we can apply it on a Wednesday or on a Tuesday and actually go about our life with something practical? It's interesting in John's account of this same story, when the Pharisees come up to him, like at the end of our account in verse 18, um, they, they kind of stay silent, but they actually approach him and actually get a little bit more confrontational in John chapter two. In John chapter two, 18 through 21, it says, so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Essentially, they're saying like, like, what, like how, how do you have any authority to do what you just did? You know, like, like what, who are you to come in and just disrupt everything that we're doing? They're probably also angry because they're now losing out on some financial gain. And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And I love their response. He said, they're like, they're, the Jews said, the temple took 46 years to build and you're gonna raise it up in three days? They're so confused. They're like, There's no, this, this guy's not doing anything. This guy's not raising it up in three days. This took years in people and skill and you know, architects and all the things that buildings take. Uh, you're not raising it up in three days. But in verse 21, it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. What Jesus is trying to illustrate to them and, and share with them is, man, this temple's gonna go away. And it did end up getting destroyed. He was prophetically speaking that this temple was going to ultimately get destroyed and go away. But what Jesus is trying to share with them is, no, there is a new way that's coming. My entrance, my arrival, my kingship brings about a brand new way that people no longer have to go to the temple to be able to worship, but because of my life, my death as a sinner and my resurrection from that death, because of all of that, you are now, you are now able to worship without this temple. And anyone that confesses that Jesus is Lord, that they're a sinner and that, that ultimately that they wanna make him king of their life, anyone that does that, they become temples as well. They become these people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see this, I'm not, I'm not getting this from myself. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and in 1 Corinthians 6.19-20, Paul says that, that our body is literally a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we house 
that holy of holies, that we house the goodness of God, his mercy, his grace, the gospel, all of these things, that his body, his identity is now placed upon us. So then the question for us is when Jesus arrives, just like he did here, when Jesus arrives to the heart of our temple, when Jesus comes to us in the same way that he went to this temple, what will he find? Will he find a fig tree that seems like it's in blossom, but internally is rotten on the inside? Many of us and all of us are at fault for this. You can come into a room like this and and we can make it seem like we're good, like life's going good. You know, you see someone in the lobby and they ask you how your week is and you're like, oh, it's great. And, um, you know, kids are good and, and work's going well and, and, and relationship with God's going great. But honestly, on the inside, as we're talking, we know, man, we're messed up. That our relationship with the God feels so far away. And he doesn't feel near to me at all. He doesn't feel like he's close to me at all. Like, in fact, like I've, I've been continuously messing up over and over and over again. But instead of confessing, instead of admitting, instead of just opening up about that, we continue to go through the motions of religion to be able to do whatever we can to seem like we're okay. And when Jesus arrives to that, his reaction is the same as it is to the fig tree. He wants to bring restoration and healing to your life. He doesn't want you to have to fake it anymore. He died, and when he died and he rose from the grave, he admitted that all of us needed his death and resurrection. He admitted that all of us are frauds and that we're not able to save ourselves. And he opened up a brand new way to be able to experience him so that we can admit, I don't have it all together. I don't feel close to him. Obedience is hard right now. And that we need this king from every extent. And we need him to be Lord over our life. In John chapter 15, I just wanna leave you with this. And in John chapter 15, um, I would have to imagine to a certain extent Jesus is envisioning the fig tree. Um, maybe he has it in his mind. Um, I just like to think that. But in verse one, it says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Jesus says, if we don't wanna wither anymore, if we don't wanna be like that tree that is not producing fruit, what do we need to do? Abide. A lot of times I think 
in my own life, what I can begin to think is, man, if I'm struggling in my relationship with God or I feel far away from him, like, what do I need to do? I need to listen to more podcasts. I need to study more theology. I need to go and I need to do this service project. I need to evangelize more. I need to pick myself up. I need to go and I need to do and I need to work. I need to, like, I gotta grow. I gotta get closer to him because I don't feel near to him. But what is, what's Jesus say? He says, come, abide, sit. And it's not that those things are bad. Those things are good. But ultimately, you don't save yourself. The only way to regrow that fruit, the only way to be able to come closer to me, the only way to be able to become one that is blossomed back with the fruit of righteousness is by sitting, studying, praying, and just taking time to be able to be with the Father. It's the only way we experience brand new life. So I encourage you this week, whether you feel like you're withering and you feel far from the Lord, or maybe you feel close to him, either way, as you prepare your heart for Easter, as you prepare to be able to grow closer to the Lord, just take some time this week to simply abide. Sit, think, don't, don't feel like you need to work and do. Just, just take an hour. Maybe even when you wake up in the morning, instead of going to our phones for the first thing, maybe we put our phone away and we don't look at it and we open God's word and we read and we just hear what he has to say first. Maybe we sit and we listen to music. Maybe we walk out in nature and we just do what we need to do to be able to just see and take on his glory and his goodness. No matter what, if you feel like you have to strive and work and do, the beautiful message of the gospel and the fact that our king came is that he accomplished the work for you so that you don't have to die on that cross anymore. He rose up from the grave because you couldn't. And now he calls us to be and to abide. As we sing out this next song, we're gonna literally sing the song, um, Hosanna. We're gonna sing, Lord, save us. I would encourage you, meditate on that. Our King did not just come for this moment, but he came for you and I today so that we may be able to experience brand new life and restoration in him. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. God, I thank you for texts like these that remind us of your true character, what you set out to accomplish, who you are, and a reminder that ultimately, without you, we can't produce any fruit. That we may try as hard as we can, but ultimately, the only way that we will see true life in a renewed relationship with you is just you, being with you, sitting with you, and growing closer to who you are. May we never forget or ever feel like we can grow past the gospel, that we can grow past your grace. May we always remember that true life is found at the center of your good, good news. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing out this last song together?